this week on the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion about a soldier, a diplomat, and a civil rights leader. Charles Young was a World War I general and an early civil rights leader, and he's the topic of a lecture by Latrice Donaldson, history professor at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. This lecture was hosted by the University of Akron in Northeast Ohio. People often think C-SPAN is funded by the federal government. In fact, we're a nonprofit organization that receives no government funding. As news consumption changes, you can help ensure the future of C-SPAN's unfiltered coverage of national government and politics. We hope you will consider making a tax-deductible contribution that will support our daily editorial operations. To learn more, visit c-span.org donate. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I am happy that you all here uh, are here to join in this discussion, examination of the life of Brigadier General Charles Young. I titled the paper or this lecture, A Destiny Deferred, because oftentimes when you read about or even you just do a Google search and looking at and examining Charles Young's life, his best friend is often quoted. His best friend was W.E.B. Du Bois. And Du Bois defined Young's life as uh, a triumph in tragedy. And a big part of the research uh, and my, my goal as a scholar is changing narratives. And so this is what we're going to discuss this evening, right? Looking at this destiny of one of the finest black officers to um, serve, uh, according to many of the of his uh, followers um, from the late 19th century into the early 20th century. So surprisingly, Charles Young was a humanities person. You know, they, I keep reading articles all the time about how the, the humanities are dying. Oh, my God, what are we going to do with this? But um, <laughs> Charles Young, while at the academy, he excelled in the humanities and actually was terrible at math. In fact, he failed math and had to get tutor help to do it. But he was a polygot. He spoke German fluently, French in Spanish, he spoke multiple dialects of French, including Haitian Creole and regular French, as well as uh, he spoke a little Tagalog and a couple of other um, indigenous Liberian uh, relig- uh, sorry, languages. So um, it is not surprising that he was also a poet, a uh, pianist. He played the violin. He uh, wrote music. He also uh, was a playwright and an author. And so this excerpt here is from a poem that he wrote, uh, Ode for Memorial Day. And it's a much longer poem. It's like five stanzas. So I just took the last one and to spare you trying to read it. And I'm trying to, you know, the cadence of it is rather interesting. So I'm just going to read this quick for you. Shall Afrique's sons be leased in this proud land? To land the virtues of the veteran army grand. 
to teach their children fondly to extol the names upon the nation's honor roll, to tell them how black blood mingled with, with the white, that right should reign and freedom's robes be bright. Tell them of Wagner, Pillow, Alsty, the Negro sacrifice for all the free. Do not forget on this Memorial Day their word to you of power, nor ever stray from this example. Pay your freedom's price in labor, love, service, and sacrifice. Let not oppression no, and no dark desires pale in your hearts, in your hearts, your country's altar fires. And when we think about the creation of Memorial Day, it was started by contingent uh, veterans, black veterans, to push for the honoring of black Civil War soldiers and wanting to honor their service. And so Young, in writing this poem in the early 1900s, he's doing something that not a lot of black officers say today would do. He's outly, outwardly criticizing the racial policies in the United States. At this point in time when he wrote this, he was the first ever African-American to be promoted to the rank of captain. And at the time he was, he wrote this, he was the only serving black line officer in the military. There were other black officers in the military, but they were not um, serving in the field. And so he is someone who is very aware of his position and who he rep and what he represents. So this evening, we are going to embark on a journey to explore the incredible life, impact, and memorialization of Brigadier General Charles Young. The title of our talk is A Destiny Deferred. It not only encapsulates the essence of Young's journey, but also serves as a metaphor for the trials and tribulations faced by this visionary leader. He also is an advocate for civil rights, a remarkable soldier, and more importantly, when we understand and embrace the value of Charles Young's leadership, we would help us to understand the value and importance of grasping what black military service meant beyond the lens of only seeing the color of the flag or seeing only green. So let's begin at the beginning almost. <laughs> Before we delve into the extraordinary journey of Charles Young, let's take a moment to understand the context of his time. James Webster Smith was the first African-American to, uh, to be formally admitted into West Point. And he is going to be formally admitted in 1870. It wasn't until 1866 with the Army Reorganization Act that we get the ability for African-Americans to serve uh, fully uh, into the American, uh, the regular uh, military, the regular army. And it is not until 1877 that you get the first black West Point graduate, which is uh, Henry Ossian Flipper. In 1874, James Webster Smith, who ended up being um, Henry Flipper's roommate after his first year, uh, he actually gets 
kicked out of the academy um, after uh, with only one credit left. And so when Webster Smith leaves, it uh, leaves only Henry Flipper there. And he eventually graduates a few years later. After uh, Henry Flipper, the next West Point, Black West Point graduate is John Hanks Alexander, who was the second. And then the third and final Black West Point graduate uh, in the 19th century was Charles Young, and he graduated in 1883. And when we think about this position he's in, right, uh, in 1884, you get the first Black chaplain to be formally admitted. The first ever Black chaplain to serve in the military was Henry um, McNeil Turner in the Civil War. But after that, it's not until 1884 that we get Henry Vincent Plummer, who was a uh, follower of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, um, to actually become the official first official Black chaplain in the regular army in, in the Ninth Cavalry. And at one point in time, in 1884, after he joins, it's going to be Henry Vincent Plummer, John Hanks Alexander, and Charles Young all serving in the Ninth Cavalry at the same time. And it doesn't go unnoticed, right? But after Charles Young's untimely death, you do not get the first black general until 1940, and it is one of Charles Young's uh, followers, uh, Bishop, o, uh, Bishop, um, I'm sorry, not Bishop, General um, Benjamin O. Davis Sr. People are more familiar with Benjamin O. Davis Jr., his son, because of his work as a, a Tuskegee Airman and his advocacy for black leadership. And so when we think about this perspective and looking at, okay, um, this is the legacy in life and the world that Charles Young is um, thriving in or uh, serving in, um, it sends a very clear message in regards to when we think about the need, you could fast forward today, in, uh, about military leadership, black military leadership, right? Because if you all are familiar with the Supreme Court decision, you saw that, you know, there is a uh, exclusion for the military academies because they know they have to recruit minorities. And so this is clearly a part of this long legacy of um, black military service. And Charles Young is a part of this legacy. So who was he really? Like let's, t let's go back to who he was and where he's from. Young was born in 1864 in uh, a town called Mays Lick, Kentucky. He was born into slavery. However, um, his mother uh, and father liberated themselves, uh, escaped to Ohio and uh, Ripley, Ohio, and his father joined the Civil War, joined the Union Army and fought in the Civil War. And it's because of his father's service, right? It's because of his father's participation in the war, and he says this, that influenced his decision to serve because he understood that this was his right as an American citizen to serve in the military and that he was honoring the legacy that his father had set for him. So Young gets admitted to West Point and understand that during this time, 
the black community of this era cultivated a joy and racial pride in having black soldiers represented in U.S. military uniforms because there's power in the uniform. The black soldiers served as a cornerstone for racial uplift in the Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction Jim Crow America. The significance of their presence reverberated not only on the battlefield, but also through society, contributing to the broader movement towards civil rights and equality. So Young throughout his life exemplified the spirit of leadership and duty that made this impact possible. Young's West Point experience taught him the discipline and the brutality of silence. And when he saw the type of treatment that African-Americans are receiving and understood his position, he did not remain silent. He chooses not to sit by and say or do nothing. He knew what it meant to be treated as a man without a country, but he endured because he saw his duty as survival. His aim in life was to do his duty for race and country. One of the important aspects of Young's life in regards to his relationship and how he differs, say, from the first Black West Point graduate is that he is going to emerge and embrace his role as an educator and as carrying the mantle of the race for everything that he does. And what does that mean? It meant that his failure wouldn't just be his failure. His failure would be the failure of the entire African-American community. When Henry Flipper was discharged, uh, dismissed um, after his court-martial, the military used his dismissal as a way to basically say that, look, look, we let, we let them in and look what they did. They don't deserve to be officers. They don't deserve to lead. They're only good at being told what to do. And so Flipper's dismissal is going to haunt black officers well into the 20th century. In fact, in 1925, a, a very scathing report was released after World War I that talks about the use of the Negro soldier. And in it, this was done by the Army War College. And in it, you know, they make this point to point out that black officers during World War I were pretty much a failure. And that the policy of the Army should be adopted, which it is going to be, that Black soldiers should only be commanded by white officers. Now, this is something that, of course, when thinking about the long civil rights movement and thinking about the advocacy and the fight to get black soldiers to be commanded by black officers while even serving in a segregated military, the importance of military training at the black college and colleges and universities are going to make a huge difference. So this handsome young man up here is uh, the second black West Point graduate. Uh, his name is John Hanks Alexander. He and Young ended up being roommates at West Point. But unlike, say, James Wester Smith 
and Henry Flipper, they actually were friends and they maintained their friendship. They ended up serving together um, in the same regiment, the 9th Cavalry. And in fact, Wilberforce University is going to be the first black college to have a uh, official military science department that is supported by the U.S. Uh, military. And what they end up doing is they get John Hanks Alexander to come. And he's there for two months. But unfortunately, he dies of a, a aneurysm while getting his hair cut. And at the time, he was a first lieutenant. And so his rank mattered. It mattered in the, in the army uh, because only people after a certain rank and a certain term of service can serve at, and teach at college universities. And so the army was in a conundrum because uh, the president of Wilberforce was like, yeah, we're sad that John is gone, but we need another. Uh, so come on, give us young. And the army has to make an exception. And they allow young to go to Wilberforce. And it saddens him. Up until the, you know, up until his, his death, he, he often reflects on his mentor, his friend, um, because he never stopped missing him. And when we look at this, um, this is a, an image of an encyclopedia um, in which you have these conversations African-Americans were having conversations about the direction of their people. And at the top, you can see little, look a little, maybe you can see it. It says colored officers or no colored soldiers, right? This is endorsed by none other than the ski wizard himself, Booker T. Washington. <laughs> but it's important to understand why the black community wanted black officers commanding black soldiers and having that leadership because it signifies essentially this um, ascension beyond just being servants. And what that position represents in regards to not just being a leader in the military, you are a leader in the community. Oftentimes, a lot of the veterans who are going to uh, serve in uh, this work with the civil rights movement they're going to be veterans, right? They're going to be Charles Hamilton Houston as the legal counsel leading the way for desegregation with the Brown versus Board of Education and NAACP. It's going to be Medgar Evers down in Mississippi fighting against Jim Crow segregation there. It's going to be the uh, leadership of black officers and veterans from World War I who are going to push back against the racial violence that happens during Red Summer. Because oftentimes when we talk about Red Summer, it's only, you know, from the perspective of African-Americans being killed. But uh, in Chicago, that wasn't the case because they had black veterans setting up snipers nests, picking folks off. Ah, oh, well. <laughs> Anywho, but thinking about the importance of military training. And this is one of the reasons why you have that consistent service of African-Americans, because the use of military training to defend their communities, their families is crucial because guess what they couldn't do during slavery. So now they can have guns and they had them. 
And now they do fight back and they did. So for example, the Tulsa massacre, right? How many of you watched The Watchmen? Love that show, right? It begins, unfortunately, with, it will, fortunately, it begins with the Tulsa massacre. And for the first, when it, when that show aired, apparently people didn't, a lot of people had no idea. They're like, what is this? This happened? They were dropping dynamite from planes? Wait a minute, they're bombing people? This is America? Oh gosh, no, well, yeah. But <laughs> he is a, the main protagonist, well, the, the, um, the, the, the father of this, of the uh, first official superhero in the Watchmen universe was a World War I veteran. He's wearing his uniform and he's hiding and gives the gun to his wife to do what I don't know, but he's not doing anything. What actually happened was the African Blood Brotherhood set up a perimeter around the jail where the white mob was trying to come and collect uh, the man accused of raping a white woman. He didn't. But uh, they were mowing down the white people um, because they uh, these were trained um, former veterans from World War One. And they had set up a perimeter to protect. And so essentially the whites were not prepared for that response. And then it escalated to the dropping of dynamite from planes. But Essentially, in the press for years, the Tulsa massacre was called the Tulsa race war. It's one of the closest this country's ever had to a race war because it lasted several days and it was armed blacks versus armed whites. And looking at the importance of colored officers training black soldiers and the importance of the uniform and what that service and training meant to black self-defense, to the self-esteem of young black men was the driving force behind Charles Young's decision to not only want to work at Wilberforce, but also wanting to train black soldiers in Liberia, and continuing his service at Wilberforce on multiple occasions because he was committed to racial uplift. He was committed to pushing back against the barrage of negativity and hatred put forth that African-Americans are going to see on a daily basis living in Jim Crow America. So this is his commitment. But... There's another person. I was told that I'm too hard on Henry Flipper. I'm not saying that I favor Charles Young or something. Uh, (laughs) But I want to kind of provide a opposite to, to Charles Young. And that is going to be Henry Flipper. Henry Flipper, the first African-American graduate from West Point. He was very proud of that uh, uniform. He's very, you know, dapper young man from uh, Georgia. Uh, And he is going to write in 18, after he graduates, he writes an autobiography. I think he's like 23 or something or 22. But he lived enough to write a very thick 
autobiography. I, you know, I've read it, of course. I, it's very, it's a wonderful resource. But it's very interesting. You think about the mentality of, of this person. You're like, wow, you wrote a whole autobiography. Uh, that was a bestseller, by the way. And um, he is going to outline, unfortunately, in his autobiography, his politics. And he's going to criticize James Webster Smith, the same James Webster Smith that had to go through two separate court martials after his first year and one in which the president of the United States had to intervene because they were trying to push him out for literally just existing. And uh, Flipper criticizes Smith. He criticizes Smith for communicating uh, with the press. Um, he criticizes Smith um, in regards to after he gets kicked out, the uh, column that he writes detailing his entire experience. And so Flipper, you know, he is going to set a very interesting precedent in regards to um, his uh, appearance or public persona with the African-American community. Because when he's court-martialed, he was surprised by the lack of support that the black press didn't give him to coming his, to his defense. He was just like, wait, why aren't y'all coming to help me? I mean, I am the first black person. Like, what, what's happening? Look, look how cool I am in my suit. What's happening? <laughs> right? <laughs> but I mean, juxtaposed to um, his writings and juxtaposed him to Charles Young, he sets a very interesting precedent. Now, he is court-martialed before Young graduates, but he has a very different appro approach excuse me, than Young. Flipper believed that social equality should be the natural outgrowth of a similarity of instincts. This is what he, quote, said. To him, color was no consequence in the question of social equality. He argued that the lack of education and the absence of proof of equality of intellect were the real obstacles for the African-American community. This is in 1876. That's the real obstacles. A civil war just ended like less than 10 years, a little over 10 years ago. But that's the real obstacles is lack of intellect and education. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the only way to overcome these obstacles, according to Flipper, was through education, not through a quote unquote war of the races. Equal rights, he contended, must be a consequence of proving one's equality through education. Now, on the other hand, Charles Young's approach to social equality and racial uplift was nuanced and a little bit more dynamic. He did not reject the importance of education because he himself, of course, is an educator. And like I said, he is a humanities person. So he's going to teach foreign language, Latin, et cetera, at, and military science at Wilberforce. And he is going to not respond to or say anything about Young's, you know, biography, but his actions kind of speak to his, his idea of what Flipper was advocating in, in 1876. So Young understood that duty, leadership, and service and active advocacy were essential components of the fight for racial equality. 
His journey was marked by his tireless commitment to advocating for justice both within and beyond the military. And so I want you to really think about this idea of racial uplift, okay? When Charles Young would sign his, uh, you know, people would um, mail out their headshots and stuff, um, and he would, people wanted to buy his headshots, he would oftentimes sign them for race and country, right? Because that's what and how he conceived of his service. David Gilroy wrote an amazing um, biography of Charles Young. It's called for race and country. I think everyone, uh, you should really uh, read that. But when looking at what he's doing, you see here, this is him atop his horse, Dolly. And there's a little boy, he's saluting him. Now, if you can picture this, what are you seeing? This is a young man who is living in Jim Crow America, and he's seeing a black man in uniform, a black officer in uniform, and he's proud to have his salute. And Young is looking at him, he's like, okay, that's a good one. You know, because the one thing that his students often talked about was that he was very strict and he was going to drill you until you got it right. And when we think about seeing this, what this young man would experience and looking up and seeing after being told how inferior blacks are, that they're not really, they're subhuman, all these things that are being barraged to them in their psyche, in their psyche and that type of trauma, the idea of racial uplift in saying that, no, there's nothing wrong with being a son or daughter of Africa. There's nothing wrong with having dark skin. There's nothing wrong with being black. He writes a book. He writes a book called, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> um, oh, I can't find it. Uh, it's uh, military, uh, military race of the, any, I can't remember it. Sorry. But he writes a book. <laughs> Can y'all edit that out? No. Okay. Never mind. All right. So look, uh, <laughs> so he writes a book that examines the various, uh, essentially um, military prowess of the various quote-unquote races uh, globally. And it is his response to the, I, the scientific pseudoscience of, um, the, of eugenics and the pseudoscience of saying that African-Americans were a subspecies, therefore, you know, they don't, they're not good soldiers. In fact, uh, according to the Navy, uh, the best type of sailor and soldier was a white male from Iowa or Nebraska. Iowa, Ohio didn't make the list, y'all. I would be offended. Seriously, you're like, wait a minute, we, we, we're landlocked, but there are two, and how are they a better sailor or soldier? <laughs> But Charles Young, rather, I, I think um, this is his playwright um, uh, side of him, where he says, well, actually, if you look at the, uh, <laughs> the science that you're using, the best type of soldier actually would be someone of mixed race. Uh, because in the argument made by um, white scientists is that, you know, African-Americans make great foot soldiers, but not great leaders. 
and whites make the best leaders. So he's like, well, wouldn't it be pertinent to say, okay, if, if blacks make the best soldiers, then combine the two and there you go. You got the perfect soldier. <laughs> but I mean, this is young writing as an active duty officer publishing this book in 1907. And thinking he writes a play in 1910 uh, about his idol, Toussaint Louverture. You know, this is the guy who beat three empires in the, uh, in the Haitian Revolution. And one of his first jobs outside of the United States was to serve as the military attache to Haiti. He is going to map and write the Haitian Creole language book for military intelligence. This is what the Marines use when they invade Haiti from 1914 to 1932. They use his maps. They use his um, reports, right? But Young is an intelligence officer. He is going to not only serve in Haiti, but he's ended up going to go to Liberia. Liberia was very afraid of being colonized. Liberia, of course, is the colony founded by the American Colonization Society. Um, and this is where they resettled a lot of people, Af people of free, people of African descent in the U.S. to um, Liberia uh, so that they can go to Africa. And so the Liberian government, who was under the leadership of um, the descendants of African-Americans, um, pleads with Theodore Roosevelt to send some sort, send a black officer to come train the Liberian military so they can defend themselves. Because when they had a white officer who was training the military, that white officer tried to uh, usurp the government and take over. So they're like, we don't trust this. So we want to make sure we get someone who can act. We, we believe they'll be better. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, Charles Young uh, is going to be suggested. And his friend um, Booker T. Washington is going to really campaign on his behalf to get him to be the attache to Liberia. And Young jumps at the opportunity. He, like I said earlier, he is W.E.B. Du Bois's best friend. And if you know anything about the Pan-Africanist movement, Du Bois is the originator of Pan-Africanism, one of the originators of Pan-Africanism. And a part of Young's growth and evolution as an officer and a leader is that he becomes a strong advocate of a Pan-African identity. And unlike his report on Haiti, which he advocated for U.S. military intervention, when he goes to Liberia, he's very clear. He's like, the United States needs to support and protect Liberia from the possibility of ever being colonized. It needs to maintain its independence. And because of his term and his service in helping to reshape the Liberian frontier force, he is going to get the Spingarn Medal, which is uh, a medal awarded from the NAACP, for his reorganization, training, and diplomacy in Liberia. It's because Young's, of Young's work that 
that Booker T. Washington actually is able to open a school in Liberia, in Monrovia. And up until the 19, I want to say the uh, 40s and 50s, uh, the Liberian Frontier Force was always advised by an African-American officer. And Young started this. He did it twice. And the Liberian government of today, actually, uh, a few years ago, has reactivated their relationship with the U.S. military. Uh, and now it's the Michigan National Guard that actually um, works with um, the Liberian military. And uh, a part of what they're doing currently, for example, is sending over black um, women NCOs to teach the Liberian soldiers how to take orders from women. <laughs> because they're just like, I, do I have to listen to her? Yes. Uh, a black woman drill sergeant apparently is a tough, tough lady. Um, but when looking at Young's life, he also is going to, when he returns from Liberia, uh, he gets a Spengar medal. He's going to ask his soldiers to contribute to the anti-lynching fund. And they do happily, regularly contribute money to fight anti-lynching in the United States. And when he gave a speech at Stanford, he's going to criticize this idea of accommodationist education, this idea of not standing up or advocating for um, black civil rights. And so Young is doing all of this. And by the way, he's also a great great fighter in the field. He serves with uh, General uh, Pershing um, in the hunt for Pancho Villa. He actually ends up saving uh, Pershing when they got lost um, in, uh, in, in Mexico because the Mexicans did not appreciate the U.S. government coming into their territory looking for Pancho Villa. So they would oftentimes give them bad intel. Uh, and uh, several times um, this happens. They get lost. They're in the middle of a desert somewhere. And Young actually has to come to Pershing's rescue. And... One of the things that Pershing does is that he recommends Young for promotion. He supports Young get becoming uh, a general. Pershing is uh, impressed by his leadership in the field. So when I say that he is going to influence a generation of black officers, it isn't just because he's a great educator. It's because they follow him in the field. The first set of black officers who are going to graduate from Fort Des Moines uh, during World War I, a good portion of them are going to be black NCOs from the four black regular regiments, other known, otherwise known as the Buffalo Soldiers. And so they are going to have come in contact with, with Young, as well as a good about 20 or 30 of his officers that he was students he trained at Wilberforce are also going to graduate. And so he is mentoring and shaping black military leadership. But unfortunately, during World War I, uh, you know, he thought he was due for another promotion. He gets, he gets seen um, and he is going to get promoted to Fulbright Colonel, but it is recommended that he um, 
you know, get discharged for health reasons. And this doesn't sit well with Young, right? He is going to push back against the idea of um, having to be forced out because he thought his fitness was good. So what did he do? He was like, I'm going to do a performative protest. He's going to protest and he's going to ride the 500 mile trek from Ohio to Washington, D.C. And here uh, you have Young, um, when he arrives uh, at the Secretary of War Newton's office, uh, this is an illustration done from the 1970s um, Ebony magazine uh, of Young with Emmett J. Scott. This was uh, this is after Booker T. Washington's death. So Emmett J. Scott um, pretty much is continuing um, the legacy of Booker T. Washington. But in thinking about um, Charles Young's dismissal, what it does is it creates a lot of bad press in the African-American community because they are outraged at his dismissal and they lead a campaign to get him reinstated because they're like, you want us to fight because Wilson wants an all volunteer military for world war one. And African-Americans are like, we don't want to serve without black officers. And we want Charles Young to be one of our generals. And so there's this serious campaign that causes problems for the Wilson administration because what they don't want is negative publicity. And so what happens is that, um, you know, the title of the, the slogan is give us Charlie Young. Right. This is going to be what they're and they're following his journey. Right. From uh, Ohio to Washington, D.C. They follow his journey in the press. Him and his faithful horse, Dolly. Charlie and Dolly. But this is a serious um, uh, protest in the community. So much so that Wilson has to do something. So what do they do? They recall Young but they put him with the Ohio National Guard to train other officers. And he does it. And he happily and eagerly does it because he knows that these are the people that are going to head to fight in, the, in World War I um, or the Great War, excuse me. Uh, and so he used to prepare them. Well, um, the war's over. This, you know, he did his ride in 1917, 1918. The war's over. Uh, but here you have um, the. Uh, this is from the. This is the official itinerary from his trip. Uh, I have always thought it was so cool that that um, the National African American History Museum in uh, Washington D.C. has this um, document, uh, basically outlining his entire trip, and. It's important because this is what the, the community is following. They're, they're, they're eagerly, they don't have television, but if they had television, you'd definitely have a camera crew following them around. You could totally see this in a reality show, right? Because, I mean, if you've ever seen Naked and Afraid, oh, my God, those people are crazy. Uh, but, I mean, looking at, uh, I could just see them like, so, okay, he's, it's dark, he's riding a horse, and you're just like, well, we're going to stay in a hotel. 
because uh, the, cam- the cameraman, like, we're not riding no horse. Uh, but, um, you know, this is something that the black community took as a victory, right? In that their campaign, because it pressures the Wilson administration. Now, Secretary of War Newton doesn't agree and they dismiss him immediately after he arrived in D.C. However, because of the bad publicity, because of the pressure, because of, you know, the Germans are using this in, in their propaganda, they have to do some sort of concession. And so this is they recall him to service in the Ohio National Guard, not in the regular army. Well, after the war is over, they recall him to regular service. Oh, he was too sick (laughs) earlier. But now we need you to go be a diplomat again. So they send him to Liberia again. And they send him to do their intelligence gathering on the various governments in Africa. And on a trip to Nigeria, he contracts disease and passes away in 1922. He gets a full military honors burial in Nigeria, but the African-American community campaigned for a whole year to bring his body back to the U.S. And it goes on a two-city tour. He arrives first in New York City and thousands of people line the streets to watch his casket ride down the street. And at his eulogy in New York, W.E.B. Du Bois stated, if the United States government retired a sick man, he wrote, it murdered him by detailing him afterward to Africa. God rest Colonel Young's sickened soul. But give our souls no rest if we let the truth concerning him drop drop overlaid with lies. If you ever want to see someone be angry at a given a eulogy, go read Du Bois' eulogy of Young. Because understand something. This is in 1923. You know, Du Bois lives until 1963, right? So he lives a long time. And in his papers, going back into uh, up until the 19, 1961, 1962, he still talks about Charles Young. He missed his friend. Right. And at his eulogy, he goes in and he's so angry. He's so angry because he felt that that Young's death was unnecessary, uncalled for. And. The day of his funeral becomes a national holiday for African-Americans. Charles Young Day actually gets celebrated for decades after his death on various college campuses. And his funeral at Arlington National Cemetery in 1923 was the largest it had ever seen. It was larger than this, the funeral of the unknown soldier. It's one of the rare times. He's only like, I think, the fourth soldier to ever use at this time in 1923. He's only ever the, uh, the fourth soldier to use the amphitheater 
for his funeral. And when looking at his life and legacy, it's interesting to think that it's a descendant of Flipper who actually is carrying, has some, in, in some ways modeled his leadership style after Charles Young. Because it is under his tenure that he gets promoted posthumously to Brigadier General in 2022. And just this year, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who retired as a three-star general, who was from Thomasville, Georgia, he's a descendant of Henry Flipper. He became an honorary member of Omega Sci-Fi. That is a black fraternity. And one of the, the second honorary member of Omega Sci-Fi was none other than Charles Young. Secretary of Defense just became his fraternity brother. And you look at the policies, right? You look at the, um, the life in regards to Henry Flipper. There is no Flipper Day, never was. The person who most honored him was Colin Powell. Kept a little bust of him on his desk. Um, and when thinking about the dream deferred of Charles Young's life, when you go to Thomasville, you know, they have like, they have his uniform and everything. And so they put him right next, they put, they put uh, Austin's, you know, right next to, to um, Henry Flipper. But it, it always struck me, as, it strikes me as odd to me because when I look at Austin's life and his career, he doesn't really seem like a Flipper person. He is a West Point graduate, but in looking at his legacy, he seems more to be someone influenced by Charles Young rather than Henry Flipper. Charles Young's life and legacy served as a powerful metaphor for the journey of progress. His style, his political activism, military leadership, rooted in a deep sense of duty and commitment to racial equality, really stands as a testament to his enduring human spirit. Young's journey is a reminder that embracing one's duty in the pursuit of justice, equality, is not just an aspiration, it's an obligation. And his life continues to guide us on our path to towards a more just and equitable and inclusive future. So I want to stop here and say thank you all for having me. This has been a true pleasure. And thank you for joining me with this exploration of the life and impact and memorialization of Charles Young. May his legacy continue to inspire us all to carry the mantle of justice, equality, and duty. Thank you, University of Akron. open for questions if there are any who's the first brave soul yes um so you mentioned how he went uh young went back to liberia mm -hmm. you think they the government 
wanted to just get him out of the country on purpose and and like since he was this outspoken figure mm -hmm. you think they wanted to send him away so he wasn't as influential and then yeah eventually he got sickness do you think they had any of these thoughts in, in mind of like oh let's just get rid of him i suppose well the question is uh do I believe that Young was purposely uh, sent to die because he was causing too much trouble, too much press? Uh, and I know Du Bois would believe that. And in some ways, you know, Young, when he gave one of his final speeches to the men of Omega Sci-Fi, he laments about going to, to Liberia because he's like, he knows that he's not going to come back. But he also is very clear that he's going to do his service because he actually could have retired. He was already retired once, but he chooses to go and do his duty because he knows what that represents. Do I think the federal government or the, the government, the military was, um, uh, this is not a Wilson crowd, right? All right. So uh, I, I don't know. Uh, um, I mean, it's possible. I it wouldn't. I've thought about it. Um, and um, I, I would say that it could be one of the underlying reasons behind it, because it is this this was a Wilson administration. And we all know how racist Woodrow Wilson was. And he didn't appreciate the kind of press that uh, the black community in Charles Young got. Um, and so would he have asked, um, the secretary of defense to do this? Possibly. Was there also still a need for Intel, uh, in Africa? Because, um, the United States Navy is going to protect Liberia from invasion and they are invested in maintaining Liberia's independence. Um, and so it's, it, it's a win-win for them to get rid of them and also maintaining their positive relationship in, in Africa. Does that answer your question? All right. Any other questions? Brave soul, come. You get to be on TV. Yes. <laughs> what made you want to study African-American military history? Um, I saw it as something that needed to be done. I've read a few books that really told a very one-sided kind of conversation. And what my, like my purpose in some ways as a historian is to tell different stories that will reshape narratives. And when I read um, some, a few books, and then I read some of these books about the Buffalo Soldiers, I was really, in, it was, you know, it was really fascinating because these scholars were like, oh, look what we discovered. There were these heroic black soldiers and, um, you know, they're just forgotten. And you're like, well, who forgot them? White people? Because black people didn't forget them. I mean, Bob Molly literally had a whole song, Buffalo Soldier. But no, I mean, the fact is, is that um, uh, when thinking about the... Uh, the legacy in regards to who's writing about African-American soldiers, the black newspapers don't forget. They're publishing about it. They're still doing Charles Young Day. So, no, they never forgot about these people. But um, 
when looking at how a lot of these, some of these earlier scholars on uh, like Frank Schubert uh, and William, William Leckie, when they wrote about black soldiers, it was always as if they were rescuing some found history and therefore um, never really delving into the mind of the soldier. I don't write traditional military history, right? Um, I'm more of a black military, like I'm, I'm pushing for the creation of a new subfield of black military studies. And uh, because of the aversion in the realm of history towards that people have towards military history, but also I'm not really into battles and, you know, who outflanked someone. I do like playing Call of Duty, though. Uh, <laughs> but um, and I have played Civilization. I liked it, too. But, um, you know, I I think that uh, the type of military i'm more of a social historian so I, I really want to get into the motives and what people build out of it because looking at how african americans construct their service it's different it's always been different and if we actually embrace that difference then maybe you can have a totally different type of conversation in relation to you might have a recruitment issue um but uh that's what kind of got me into it you know reading books books can change your world. All right. That's a great question. Thank you for asking. Yes, you're on television forever. <laughs> oh, coming to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so oftentimes when discussing um, African-American history, a lot of times we go over the civil rights movement, um, political leaders and educational leaders, and now military leaders. Do you think there's another area that we might be missing that maybe should have more study? Yes. The geospatial studies, the creation of black ecologies, right? So a big part of what some of these soldiers end up doing, for example, is they found institutions of higher learning. Lincoln University at St. Louis uh, in Jefferson City, uh, Missouri, was founded by an entire regiment, the 67th Black Regiment from the Civil War, right? They created a whole college that still exists today. They found towns, right? You look at the, when I talk about the, why are black people in Minnesota? Well, they create enclaves. So you look at this trajectory in regards to their spaces and the area that they're, you know, the, the world that they're creating to insulate themselves from Jim Crow America. So black geography, right? So for example, one of the largest, um, expat communities uh, in Mexico, for example, are African-Americans. Um, and looking at those geographies and you're like, okay, why are they leaving? Or you have that consistent need to leave. Is America our home? Can we go somewhere else? Marcus Garvey, like I said, Du Bois with Pan-Africanism, Du Bois leaves, right? He's He goes and he moves to Ghana when Ghana invited him. Thinking about the reaction to, because there's power in movement. There's power in creating a safe space. So African-American soldiers founded a whole town, Blackton, New Mexico. Uh, former black chaplain Allens Allensworth founds Allensworth, California as a place to escape that. So looking at, you know, say black geographies, ecologies, these are important um, in thinking about, well, what are some of the different ways that Blacks um, not only empowered themselves, but uh, fought against um, 
the oppression without having to pick up a gun or something. So moving, getting and leaving, like the great migration, you know, was, was serious. It literally changed the entire political landscape of this country, right? Because the white South was like, wait, why are y'all leaving? Well, really? <laughs> why, why are you leaving? Woodrow Wilson even wrote to the governor of Mississippi because he was like, stop cutting, stop the trains leaving. And they're just like, well, we got to keep them here. And you're like, well, sir, maybe stop trying to kill them. How about that? Uh, and now you look at Mississippi. Ooh, anyway, uh, so yeah, um, I mean, there's so much that can, when you look at that, you can cover so much in regards to uh, civil rights, different types of leaders, the leaders that you don't know about uncovered this so much uh, uncovered history in that um, you have these because uh, even you can even take an exam, uh, take an option of looking at, well, were there really only ever just massacres or is black self-defense a real thing in regards to this, the West? Right. And why is there a, such a large black expat community in Mexico? Um, it goes back to slavery, right? Because more people fled south than they did north because Mexico was closer. And um, the Mexicans actually would kill the slave catchers. So it's a win-win for them. <laughs> uh, I'm not an advocate of violence or anything like that, but I'm just saying. Uh, yes. So with your passionate memorialization of Young and Flipper, right? Yes. We had an earlier date. <laughs> what do you think of the memorialization of civil, uh, civil rights movement? Because there were people mm -hmm. long before Martin Luther King right. were going to, going to see Gandhi and learning from Gandhi's followers. And then, you know, they're never, they're not known as much. So do you see that there needs to be a change in narrative since you are into the long civil rights also? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, there is, for example, a part of my research that it's a new field that I discovered a couple of years ago is the Black Pacific, right? So you have the relationship of African-Americans who are going to be stationed in the Philippines and Japan long before World War II, right, in China, African-American soldiers are going to be fighting in the Boxer Rebellion. You do have these bridges and, and lines of communication in which, like you're saying, there are other people going to Gandhi to study their nonviolent um, ways. In fact, I mean, Wallace Thurman, uh, the person who uh, his book, Jesus and the Dispossessed, is going to be heavily influential in Dr. King's um, uh, journey. And he goes there because Wallace Sermon went to Gandhi. But this is not someone y'all know much about, right? Uh, Wallace Sermon, you know, he talked to trees because he thought about the communal relationship with humans and nature. And, you know, think about Lord of the Rings, right? You're like all the elves were singing with trees and stuff. And, um, but I mean, Wallace Sermon was doing it before Tolkien, I guess. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But I mean, really, in, in, I agree with you, right? Because even uh, looking at the different types of movements of resistance, 
you know, Gandhi sets a really, his strategy is very militaristic in, in many ways because it's a very militant, nonviolent movement and understanding what militant nonviolence means, right? Because how we are taught about Dr. King is not who he really was. And so he was very militant in his nonviolence as a strategy. And like you said, we have to change that narrative. So, you know, I hope you do some research and you bring up some of these names because I think that would be great because we could, it'll spark more conversations um, in regards to pushing back against, because you look at how King's legacy has been usurped by some people who literally are misremembering or like, Dr. King would be offended. No, I think he would be offended by you. Um, but uh, really understanding, you know, you're like, when I tell my students, I was like, you do know he was a socialist, right? What? What do you mean? He was a socialist. Good. Did you not see the poor people's campaign? He literally outlines a whole, he has two socialists write the economic plan for helping to fight poverty in the U.S. Because it wasn't a race. That was a poverty for blacks and whites and all poor people. And then he got killed. Not being a conspiracy theorist, but you know, um, but I mean, really, you know, we do need to because like it's it's very obvious that there's a very clear message that's trying to be taught in our history, in our in, in U.S. history. And it's unfortunate because oftentimes when you tell students in college, some of them really genuinely are angry that they're like, my teacher lied to me. Like, this isn't what happened. Like, the confusion, my parents lied? I, I, yes, it's very interesting. So thank you for that question. Yes. Kind of continuing off the idea of memorializing and remembering figures. Um, do you think that kind of the resurgence of Henry Flipper, mm -hmm. do you think that was because for some people it was he was less outspoken about issues of race uh, than Young was. Do you think that that kind of um, disarming, disarming mm -hmm. of black figures, do you think that that might have motivated a rise in kind of remembering him? I, I do. I think, like I said, um, this is also, you know, he gets his name cleared. I mean, it, trust me, there was a fight. Like, it was a high school teacher who helped lead the fight to clear his name. Um, and how awesome are history high school teachers, by the way, right? Uh, you gotta love them. But uh, it's a history high school teacher who had a, like when his students did a project and, you know, that kind of pushed and got his fan the Flipper family involved. And then you have, you know, this is also the tail end of Vietnam. The army's trying to reshape his image. What are we gonna do? They, this is, they, they're gonna exonerate Flipper. They're going to, exonerate the entire regiment that uh, Theodore Roosevelt disarmably discharged. Uh, there was only one person left alive. So they were like, well, here, here you go. His 25,000, we owe you. He's just like, okay, I guess. But I mean, they are going to really push for reshaping their image of we don't see race, we only see green. And you take the language and rhetoric of Young and then you take the... Um, the fact that for a long time, you know, uh, Colin Powell is going to be a key figure in, for example, he helps 
in the Reagan administration, he is going to help um, design Operation Ar- Urgent Fury, which was the invasion of Grenada. And uh, you're kind of like, why are they inv- United States invading Grenada? Because uh, they actually weren't doing anything relating to communism. Maurice Bishop just was trying to push back. Uh, he was a socialist. And so, you know, the Reagan administration was like, no communist. Yep. So, I mean, you have a, a very clear, his politics aligns with the idea of we only see green. And so this is what we're going to support. Right. Um, and, you know, like I said, I, like I read an article about him recently where someone called him a civil rights leader, which is like project number 27. I have to write a new article about black, the conservatism of Henry Flipper because actually no one has. And so I've started writing that. Um, and, uh, because it's a conversation that is uncomfortable, especially when I talk to Thomasville, Georgia residents, uh, they really love Flipper down there. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, it's, it's, he's the, he's an interesting guy, but I mean, pushing back against, yes, he is a trailblazer who deserves, he, he led a wonderfully extraordinary life, but we also have to include his politics, and he's purposely reacting against the idea of civil rights advocacy, and that matters. Any other questions? Yes. Um, I was wondering. So with Flipper, he had the uh, he didn't really obviously didn't share a lot of the point of views with other African Americans. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, was like his viewpoint maybe? common or like held by other middle-class bourgeois african-americans at the time mm-hmm. because like uh one of the slides was talking about how like the middle-class black community really helps w um uh du- 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 Bois. i'm yeah. sorry i'm blanking yeah it helped us cool. du Bois a lot and uh, like they, they, he drew a lot of support from them but mm-hmm. clearly du Bois had a very very different position from flipper mm-hmm. so like was flipper like a total outlier in this or were there others kind of like him in that time period so he's not a total outlier. However, black conservative, of course, is something that has, you know, has existed. Uh, but the kind of conservatism that he was promoting uh, was a bit unusual. Like um, I was telling um, the group earlier, uh, he wrote how he was completely opposed to the anti-lynching legislation. He was a, he would be, the best example I could think was he would fall into the category of a libertarian of today in regards to his views of limiting the U.S. government, right? Um, He doesn't believe the U.S. government should be involved with civil rights or anything like that. And so not a lot of African-Americans would fall into that category, but um, there are other black conservatives. I mean, Booker T. Washington for is going to be a conservative during his his period. Um, he is, of course, famously going to be opposed by, uh, you know, T. Thomas. I mean, sorry, uh, Monroe Trotter and W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, and Monroe Trotter wrote the Boston Guardian. And so famously, they're going to talk, a, you know, a lot in the press about Booker T. Washington. But Flipper is someone who criticizes black soldiers. And after he did that a couple times, they stopped printing his little letters. 
right? There's like there's only so much conservative, so much we we what they're not going to do is a, how allow him to be uh, opposed to black soldiers who the soldiers he's criticizing will be the uh, soldiers in uh, Houston who um, in the with the Houston uprising, which is ended up being the largest court martial in U.S. history. Uh, and them killing um, white police officers who had been harassing. In fact, you know, the whole situation happened because a white police officer was assaulting a black woman and a black soldier intervenes to protect her and he gets attacked. And so Slipper comes out and criticizes them. The entire black population, the press, is supporting them, showing them love. And here, here he comes. They're disgraceful. That was the last letter he wrote that got published. <laughs> so, I mean, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's an interesting dynamic in thinking about black conservatism because you have famously George Shuler, who was also a black um, soldier in World War I, uh, but his conservatism isn't on par with, with flippers. It just isn't. So he is a little bit of a unique case in, in some things. Yeah. So in your experience as an educator, how do you approach those conversations with students about like their own reconciliation with what they thought they knew and what's fact? Like, do you, I hate to use the word backlash, but do you expect like a reaction? And then what's your, I guess, reaction to their reaction? Um, so one of the things I do encourage is civil conversations. So um, their reaction you know, I, I want them to fully articulate their argument. And then I ask them to really think about what they're saying, right? So, you know, when you have students who are coming, for, for example, when I have students write a, uh, do research on and have to write something on the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Um, most of them had never heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act. They didn't even know that there was a period where the U.S. banned up to the 1940s uh, Chinese immigration. And so when you have them, so they try to relate it to, say, modern day immigration issues, you're like, well, so you have a problem with immigration. So let's talk about this because this is also, this is 1882 and you're having this upsurge in immigration from everywhere else in the U.S. at uh, Ellis Island, but they're particularly focusing on one Asian group, the Chinese. They're not, initially, they're not stopping the Japanese. They're only doing the Chinese. And this was purely racial politics. So you, you get, you, you walk them through. Like I, what I try to do is walk them through. Let's, let's think this out. Let's talk it through. Also, I, uh, you know, <laughs> Students don't really like to challenge me that much, not because I'm hard or something. It's just, um, you know, once you walk, once I walk it through and they see what happens when you walk it through, they don't, they're just like, well, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of times what's happened with students who are distraught from what uh, they're learning in my class is that it makes them want to learn more. And so I'm very appreciative. That's one of the things I love about being a college professor is the thirst for knowledge um, that uh, happens where they're like, I'm going to research as much as possible to prove you wrong. And I'm like, yes, go do it. Go look and 
prove me wrong. I want you to. I don't mind. Go bring me some credit, credible sources. <laughs> Not a TikTok video, uh, but some credible sources to back up your argument. And I have no problem conceding if I'm wrong. And so it's interesting, the, the conversations, um, they, they do, they go do the research and um, they want to talk about it. And some of them end up being history majors. So I'm just like, I did what I was supposed to do. Tenure, tenure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, th- this is, so you, you know, one, also you see, I like to make things light. I'm going to make it as light as possible, right? Um, I, when I do have to talk about difficult conversations, I always get, you know, give a trigger warning. Um, but I am going to uh, engage with difficult conversations. I don't shy from it. I actively want to because um, a big problem is that a lot of times when people engage in difficult conversations, they don't know how to engage civilly. And so um, that's part of learning in the classroom. And so, you know, that's, I think is part of my responsibility as a professor is showing them how to engage with difficult conversations in a calm, even if it has to be a little uh, light, so be it, but you have to push them out of their comfort zone. Um, that's the only way you can grow because it's growing pains. So I always tell them that at the beginning of class, I'm like, look, you're going to hear things that you're not going to like. It's going to make you uncomfortable. Uh, but It'll make you, uh, you will grow. You will learn. So, I'll answer your question. Yes. You know, covering uh, young service, and especially the service of folks like uh, Colin Powell, uh, where in your studies do you address the dichotomy of African-American service where service may not be wanted by the country, mm-hmm. where they feel like that they want to you know, provide something for a nation that doesn't want it? And, mm-hmm. and where does that fall in your research? Well, a big part of it is when you think about the service of African-Americans, uh, I like to go back to a quote from David Walker's appeal. And in that quote, David Walker says, this country is more ours than it is theirs. And during the Civil War, uh, prior to the allowance of African-Americans to serve in the military, there were debates in black churches, right, about whether or not they should serve. Uh, Brian Taylor writes a really great book about this. And one of the things that they talk about is, is this country really is, the thing that comes up is this country is ours more so than it is anyone else's. And this is how they conceive of their service. It isn't more so, yes, they're serving America, but it's also serving something that, um, one, they're going to participate in liberating other black people, but also this is what you do for the country you live in. And so they may not, you have the situation that, like, I think Vietnam really changed a lot of things in regards to how people perceive service. Um, but African-American service to the in in the military didn't really decline after vietnam it's pretty much stayed the same um and at times like i said it it went up so yes you have uh the change perception of um well you know this is not our war you know this is another someone else's war but right now what you're getting is 
the opposite, the other side of it is um, one, I can benefit from this service. If I just do this amount of time, I will benefit greatly through these benefits, X, Y, and Z. And looking at it from a perspective of how this is going to benefit me and my family. And um, a big part of that, uh, also getting job skills training, um, and it opens a lot of doors. So this is harkening back to that um, original, uh, I mean, a big part of why Blacks served right after the Civil War in that military service opens doors. If you think about the post office, right? Um, for a very long time, that was one of the easiest pipelines in regards to African-American veterans. They go work the post office. And it's a service still and great benefits. And they stay there for the whole time. They don't have other jobs. And it is uh, very interesting when you look at the war in the post office. Because I don't understand it. Um, but uh, the the desire to defund the post office, when you start looking at the numbers of people who work in the post office, there's a high number of African-Americans. And all of a sudden, well, we want to defund the post office, the postal service. And this directly correlates after Vietnam. You're kind of like, okay. But postal service, postmaster generals and black communities, there was something they were always fighting for. So there's a long history of that. Ties into the service, you're wearing the uniform and stuff. It's all kind of intersections, right? So I hope that answers your question. I don't know. How are we good on time? Okay. These were great questions. Thank you all. I love it. Thanks for listening to this week's Lectures in History podcast. To find even more history content, visit c-span.org slash AHTV.